Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. We'll examine the multiple implications of the bold assassination with noted regional expert Tim Schrank. Also, we've been hearing a lot about the Russian gulag of prisons, and it is bad. But what about the U.S.? How does that stack up against the U.S. racist gulag of prisons? We'll examine that as well, as long as looking at the case of Julian Assange. Will they free this hero of journalism, or will he die behind bars? That's the question. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's KPFA in the Bay, and we are happy to have you along. We start off... Uh, with our really a regular contributor to this show, Randy Credico, who has uh, been doing the show live on the fly at our sister station, he's been doing a an endless series called Countdown to Freedom, uh, which is meant uh, to tell the truth about Julian Assange and do everything possible to free this hero uh, of journalism. Uh, and let's start there. Uh, Randy, uh, I want to get to the prisons and uh, some other stuff too. Uh, but how is Julian doing? Uh, any light in this tunnel? You know, it's it's. Thank you, Dennis. First of all, for having me on your show, and uh, thank you and Flashpoints for uh, being on this for the last as long as I've known you. I mean, not as long as I've known you, but since I started this show six years ago, and you've been on it. Uh, and that's, there's very few. I'll be honest with you. There are very few. And uh, I thank Pacifica uh, Station, uh, KPFA, and WBAI. All right, enough of the stroking. But I got to tell you something. I don't know. I got to be honest with you. I don't know what's happening. And nobody's in, been able to see him. His own wife and children were not allowed to see him on his birthday, July 3rd. Can you imagine? The the cruelty of that is, you know, it it's a dishumane, non-violent, uh, you know, brilliant human being uh, stuck inside this prison. It's it's the Tower of London on on, on a ground floor basically, uh, because it's been nonstop torture uh, in, in so many ways. The places like having a thousand boom boxes, uh, you know, around right. the clock around him. Uh, so it's, it's just, it's, it, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to survive this. Um, that, I think you know, that Randy, point, you raise it. That's one of the things in terms of people that people do not understand about the nature of prison among the various, uh, troubling parts of it, and particularly a prison like he's in is the noise level. It's con- yeah. you, you never uh, somebody like Julian Assange, who is a reflective human being, who is a thinker. It, it's really right. a killer. It's like putting Spinoza in there. It's it, it's like Descartes or you know uh, Robert Burns. I mean, uh, someone that's reflective that uh, that is en- ensconced in this 
constant noise like uh, Biloxi, uh, Mississippi uh, bus station at uh, 10 o'clock at night. People are making, that's what it's like. They're around the clock. You can listen uh, to some of the uh, sound feed that his wife, uh, Stella Morris, put out there. It's just constant. And, you know, but why wouldn't it be? You got people in there. Uh, who are so-called terrorists, people that fought back against the British Empire's bombing of Yemen and the British and the dying, uh, fading, moribund British Empire, our colony. They're, they're what they did in Iraq, killing, uh, being associated with the, the, the genocide of a million Iraqis and people who, like, uh, you know, so they're in, in those prisons and they call them terrorists. It's a terrorist state. Britain is a terrorist state, just like the U.S. Let's be honest. We are terrorist states. That's what we are. I mean, I mean it's hard to say that, and it's hard for people to absorb that, but that's what we do. We come in, I mean, we uh, look at Yemen and look at Iraq, look at Afghanistan, and then in the, in the 20 year war that uh, we want to get involved with the, you know, with the, uh, the uh, pro-Nazi, uh, you know, uh, Azov battalion in, the, in Ukraine. But that's another story. Uh, I just want you to know that Assange is, uh, if he goes, then, you know, what's left? What is really left? He may as well say they're closing KPFA down tomorrow. All right? Wouldn't you be out on the street? Isn't it a cause to worth going to jail for or dying for to keep KPFA and Pacifica alive. They were just going to shut it down one day. So that's Well, I've already happened. gone to Randy, I've already gone to jail. I've already been arrested once I know you when have. they that's showed up with nine armed guards. But go on, go on. You're willing to do that, all right? And you're willing to go to jail. And, and, and Cornell West said that there are causes that are worth going to jail or dying for and uh, whether it be stop and frisk or whatever it is with Julian and, and <laughs> Julian, if he goes, how do I feel good about anything? If he ends up in a max, am I just going to live with that? Do I just have to live with that happening? And there's not enough resistance out there. Do people not know the uh, import of this? What happens to the rest of us? What happens? What's, what does that auger? What's the harbinger? Uh, you know, uh, for journalism, if this happens to him, if it happens to him, and, and let's, on a personal note, you and I both interviewed him together. We've interviewed his mother together. We know what a humane individual, nonviolent individual, and we're both incredulous that he is in this situation now, and for his fourth birthday in a row, where they strip searched him, put him in a cell naked. Uh, when Pretty Patel came up and said, well, she signed the paper and asked, asked the uh, Justice Department to say, would you please give me a nice stroke uh, publicly for signing? They, would, they wouldn't do it, okay? They wouldn't say, thank you, Pretty Patel. Not even Merrick Garland would say, thank you for doing this, because they know the whole thing is a fraudulent enterprise. It's a fraudulent enterprise. Uh, and, I mean, it is... <laughs> it, it is unbelievable, because... People don't realize when they hear Assange says, "Oh, uh, he's the one who sabotaged. He collaborated with the Russians to sabotage Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, election." And that's really, in, in my opinion, that's, all that's been, the that's bottom all line. Been. Yeah, in terms yeah, that's of why, why Assange is still in station. jail. That's why liberals that listen to WBAI and the liberals 
who like a lot of the programming still are upset that they think Assange had something. She had 56 negative approval ratings. People thought she was corrupt. Hillary Clinton in April of 2016, 56% said she was corrupt. Okay, so why did they nominate her? All right, so they're looking for a scapegoat, and there are people thinking that he had something to do with that election and all of that. But that's why he's not even being charged for that. He's being in charge, charged for exposing the murder of journalists and a bunch of children and the torture of uh, Iraqi and, and, and Afghans. That's what he's being charged with. He's not being charged with anything in 2016. He's being charged. The guys who killed the people on that gun belt, they're all walking free. Some of them live in the Bay Area. All those guys in the gun now, boat, and, and I want those. Randy. It's really important to let people know we're talking about a document that's called collateral murder, and this yeah. was a document that was released through WikiLeaks. A uh, video too. Uh, a video, yeah. and it showed unbelievable brutality of U.S. forces, and they they're in a helicopter gunship. And they're they're watching the road. You see this through the helicopter gunship uh, video, and they call into Central to get permission to open fire. Then they kill the journalists, the children, the family, and the and release the of that, that document. Rescue, yeah, and the ones that came to the rescue. The God ones that tried to help the injured, the ones that were injured by the gunboat firing, they came in to rescue and get them to the hospital. They were killed. And they're still at large, the guys that did that. And the guy that exposed it is in jail, dying. And that, they see, that's the kind of U.S. policy. If, if, if that is made uh, available to people, to folks in the United States. They might have a different view of policy. They might have a different view, for instance, uh, of the U.S. support for the slaughter in Yemen. Uh, they might not be so gullible to believe that the United States is in there working with the Saudis on a human rights operation. Uh, wait, that's, I didn't even hear that one. That's like, I'm so obsessed. With <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and that we're in there because we love democracy in Ukraine. There are people who I know who actually believe that. There are people who actually believe that we're into this great, uh, the great Grand Rebbe uh, Zelensky, uh, you know, you know, just banned the Communist Party in the, in the Ukraine. We're there for democracy. We're not there for the 20-year war. And, uh, you know, we're not there for a uh, proxy war. We're not there to try to grab uh, resources from Russia. We're there because we love democracy like we do in Saudi Arabia, uh, like we in, in, in uh, you know, Like we did in countries. El Salvador where we supported yeah, the death yeah. squad. Or when we overthrew the government starting in 1954 with our bends, the United States has a policy, has a covert policy of overthrowing governments and killing That's people it. they don't agree with. Like any other government, they're corrupt, they need to be held accountable, and journalists like Julian Assange are the ones who do it and did it. And that's why that dude is in jail. And there were, I'm so furious because we know, Randy, how many major uh, 
news outlets participated with Assange, used his material, used his structure, won awards with his material, and they're silent now. That's what I can't say. You got, totally I mean, silent, seriously, you, know? you got somebody like Nicole Wallace. I, I know I'm a broken record. Yeah, no, she does two hours. She's a slime bucket. She was the she was the spokesperson for stealing yeah. the George yeah. W. Bush. I mean the George H. With the second one, Bush two. She was the one. You remember Bush two torture? She was communications yeah. director for Torture Time. Yeah. Should yeah. we believe yeah. Yeah. her and now? She's on. There are liberals out there that watch her, thinking she's good because they hammer a, a cheap target like Trump. But they, but they don't go after her policies with, I mean, it's, it's like everyone elevating Liz Cheney. Her father is a mass murderer. It's like, it, it may as well be uh, Goebbels' uh, daughter coming out and saying, that we hate propaganda. All right, so what, uh, she hates propaganda. She hates, uh, uh, I mean, and I agree, that, uh, you know, Trump and all that stuff, bad stuff. But for her, whose father is a mass murderer of a scale we have not seen since World War. Oh, wait, Kissinger. I think that Cheney's up there with Kissinger uh, in terms of a uh, State Department high-level figure uh, that uh, murdered uh, a lot of uh, foreign uh, individuals. You know, seriously. Okay, but, all you right, know, Randy, I gotta... Uh, okay. Wait, we're right, gonna supposed to again. talk about the... Uh, yeah, we're gonna talk uh, about issue, prisons but, in one second, but before we get off, uh, get off Assange, again, how do people... Uh, stay in touch. Maybe people want to support. Maybe they want to stand up. Maybe there are some uh, journalists listening to this show that want to alternative journalists that want to help get the word out. Maybe there's some mainstreamers who are getting a little bit of their guts back and they understand that if Assange goes down, we are all in jeopardy. How do people uh, find out information, follow your work, do what they want to do? They should follow you. Listen, they can get a lot of the stuff, including the 31 shows that you and I did together. They can get them on the KPFA uh, archives. We did 31 shows together when I was first at WBA, and, and then you picked up the show. Right now, you can get the last three years, including three or four interviews that we've done uh, with Assange and his mother at uh, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Just spell that out. Or randycredico.com, you can get the last three years, or you can uh, you just find it. Uh, the, uh, the the ones that you and I did, we did uh, many interviews. You remember the the last one we did uh, with Julian and uh, his uh, his 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 wife. We did one, the last one, the last one that Julian did with his wife, the one and only is uh is uh there i think you can find it on somewhere on on the assange countdown to freedom.com and that was a an historic and the one that we did with his mother in fact you and i did four interviews with his mother most of them out of kpfa because you guys picked up the slack there when i left wbai which was a uh an incredible uh moment that, that we were able to resuscitate it and i thank you for that um and, uh, you know, I don't know. You can go to Assange Countdown to Freedom.com. All I know is, is that I had a, an interview with Craig Murray and, um, and uh, Steve Donziger yesterday, and it's on Assange Countdown to Freedom.com, and there is some uh, major, major information coming from the two of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's very moving. You know, it's, I'm, I'm such a, uh, 
a sentimental person that, you know, I start crying during these shows and these guys I know, but these are two out. people. These these are two people that people that people should listen to and we've done you know uh, why? quite a bunch why, Dennis? on Steve Why, Dennis? Yeah. You know why? Because they were both persecuted themselves. They both did time in prison, these guys, for journalism, one, and one for economic or uh, environmental activism as a lawyer. He won a, he won a lawsuit. Stephen Donziger won a lawsuit against a major uh, oil company for the people uh, who have been abused for decades. And for that, he was prosecuted really not, almost sort of not by the and government, it, it was, but by the business community. Yeah. Anyway, uh, judge, let's... Let, there was, we're gonna go. We're gonna do that story again too soon. But uh, stay there now. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with uh, Randy Credico, uh, and people don't know. You know, people heard about you and Roger Stone, Randy Credico. But yeah. really, where you met Roger Stone was when you were confronting the three strikes Rockefeller laws, where. Thousands of uh, black people were swept off the street. Uh, there were uh, all kinds of racism in terms of the way in which laws were applied. Uh, and ten, and, and you were, were a crucial player in, with the Consular uh, Foundation in changing those laws. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you, Randy, in the context where this wonderful star basketball player has been you have to admit she's taken hostage by uh, they're playing hardball Putin's playing hardball this is an attempt for an, an exchange she got caught in the crossfire we're hearing a lot about the terrible prison system in Russia and it is bad but let's talk a little bit about the gulag that you confronted uh, and helped uh, uh, in your in your battle to free thousands of uh, prisoners who were serving time based on a racist justice system Do, well, tell well. us a little bit about that all right first of all it hasn't gone away the laws were changed in new york and i can tell you there's so many people uh, uh people foreign uh, nationals that uh, were caught up and they spent time in prison and uh you know they were innocent and later they got out after spending 12 15 years uh, New York State, with your help, uh, with your commitment, yes. New York State. New York State had. I mean, guys who spent twenty-seven years for the first time drug offense from Colombia uh, because the New York State laws were and 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 they've been modified in the work that we did uh, from uh, nineteen ninety-eight, the concert fund, till two thousand and four, uh, two thousand and five, where the laws were finally modified and they were. They did it to mollify us, but they made it so you could uh, have retroactivity on these draconian sentences. And ninety-seven point eight percent of the people going to jail were black and Latino. Give us an example of some of the sentences, some of all the right, times. All right, served, let me. I'll some... tell you something. Uh, okay, I will give you the sentence of, uh, of someone like Elaine Bartlett, who had five dollars in her pocket. And uh, she was set up in a, in a, uh, a by someone who was uh, uh, looking to get off. He was looking to get off, so he set her up. He had her bring up a bag to uh, Albany, and uh, she. Uh, the whole thing was a uh, sting operation. She had five dollars in her pocket. Completely, she had four kids, and so she gets arrested. And the guy gets off, who is facing hundreds of charges, 
and the, the black woman, the white guy gets off, the black woman and her husband, the judge marries them, gives the husband 25 years to life and her 20 years to life and leaves the four kids in, 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 in a housing project in New York City by themselves. All right, then there's Melita Oliveira, who is a, it's a woman that worked at a Catholic church uh, that came in. Someone gave her a package and, uh, and, and she comes to New York State. Uh, with this package, uh, and she, she hands everything over to customs, and she had like some cocaine that somebody stuffed in there, and the, the Fed said, we don't want this. We, we're gonna let you go. We know that you're not in, but the state, the state took it. The state said, all right, we're gonna charge you. And, uh, so she said, all right, they didn't even ask for a bail. She was let out. And then, uh, on the day of, the day of sentencing, uh, day of uh, of the jury coming back, she was taken away from her five children and put in a prison for 15 years to life. This is Melita Oliveira. We fought very hard, and we got her out uh, on clemency after nine years. All right, but this these are not anecdotal. These are these are the rule, not you know not the exceptions. And there's so many people like that that spent so much time in prison. And you know what? You, there's not enough people that care, and you, you can't do enough to stop it. It's still going on right now. They modified the laws, but it's still going on on a different level. Still going on. Um, it's and still that was... going on, and that's just New York State, but across the country, Texas, pot, you go to jail longer than this woman, basketball player. There are people who've done 15 years in Texas for a joint. 15 years. And that's not an exaggeration for a joint, just like the woman in Texas who who voted twice got a seven year prison sentence. And this, just coincidentally, most of them, ninety nine percent, are black or Latino. And this is the whole three million people in prison in this country. We all the people are upset that one woman that was that, that uh, whatever she did, and and, and and yes, Russia has strict drug laws, but that's for everybody. It's not just for this woman. They've always had strict drug laws, all right? Uh, they're not as bad as the U.S., but they have strict drug laws, like many countries do. And it's a form of, uh, you know, social control drug laws. Uh, maybe they had a big problem there, you know. I, but but it's so much focus on her is not as bad as the focus on this uh, racist uh, dude by the name of Navalny, uh, this uh, oligarch. Uh, white supremacist. CNN, CNN did a uh, documentary about Navalny's, uh, you know, persecution. He's doing a year in prison, you know. But they won't do one on on uh, people in this country. They won't do a, a documentary on Mumia or Leonard Peltier or the tens of thousands of other political prisons in this country. But they do one on Navalny because it's cynical. It's about making Russia the enemy. To help out the uh, the twenty year uh, planned, uh, you know, uh, the proxy war uh, in Ukraine against Russia, and so they need. That's all CNN is is, is a uh, is, is a propaganda arm of the Pentagon. That's it, Barbara Starr. Uh, I mean, look at him, Barbara Starr, Wolf Blitzer, uh, Jim Acosta, Jim Skiotto. You think these guys are, are not Operation Mockingbird? Seriously. 
No, they they really do work. It's pathetic. They they do work as court st- as uh, Pentagon stenographers and administration stenographers. They are uh, they are there. I mean, it is interesting to see the back and forth. Uh, now, the the former press secretary for Biden is now joined MSNBC, uh, and uh, the new press secretary came from the the private media, and it's a back and forth. The, the person who covers Biden for MSNBC uh, is was, is pr- practically a campaign spokesman for the group. If you listen, there's no real critical discussion. Now, I'm not uh, I'm not saying that the prison system uh, in Russia is anything to write home about. I'm just saying. That the it's one we, fourth we clearly, of our prison population. The, the one dual, fourth of our the, prison population. Yeah. You know that Russia has one fourth of our prison population. One fourth, and percentage well, something like wise. that. Yeah, we have three million, but percentage wise, they roughly the same amount of people. They, it's, we have twenty five percent of the world's prison population. Well, we're four percent of the world's population, but we got twenty five percent of the prison population. And that's it. But CNN doesn't uh, want to do stories about that. They want to talk about one guy who's a uh, white nationalist. He's a little pen of Russia uh, by the name of Navalny. They're going to do a big uh, documentary on him, but not on Mamiya, not on uh, Leonard Peltier, uh, not on Julian Assange. It's just the one person. And, you know, it's so obvious why they're doing it uh, is because... First of all, the war is over, and in, uh, in, uh, in the military operations are over. And it, 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 but they're still they still want to sell weapons and, and, and Lockheed. Yeah. And, and, and they all want to sell weapons. This is like that's what it's all about. They moved the operation from Afghanistan now to this area in Ukraine, and they, they're looking to sell weapons. They're like drug dealers. They, well, know, no, that's looking. true. They pumped up the war. Then you saw the the weapons go on the market. Uh, the weapons uh, dealers became the heroes they've they've sold as much weaponry as they possibly could for the moment so you don't hear as much about the war randy we're gonna have to leave it right there right. but i you know what we're both always appreciate we're, we're both gonna end up in a u.s gulag or concentration camp uh, seriously because uh, you you they don't want this kind they don't that's why everyone should support kpfa they support to support Flashpoints. You should make a donation because you're not going to. No, no, no. We can't. No, 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 no donations here today. Can't do that with all the affiliates. No, no we, we, we. Oh, no, no. Right. But we I are happy to have to you. We should support the Randy. How do people get to? How do people get to follow your show? What's the best way to do it? Uh, when I when I go into Rikers, they can follow me at Rikers dot com. No, they can follow me at uh, at. Uh, Credico at Rikers.com. All right. No, they can they uh, can they can get they can actually get this stuff at the uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom dot com. And uh, there's a lot of shows there, including some of our uh, gems. Thank you very much, Dennis. Right. And uh Right, I, I really appreciate you and uh, all that you've done. I don't know how you do this five days a week. I do it two days a week, and I'm exhausted. You do it five days a week. I don't know how you do it. Uh, but, I have four robots know, and one me. Anyway, gotta I got to go. Take it easy, You Randy. must have a big staff of 20 or 30, right? Oh, yeah. I got 20 or 30. <laughs> 
I'll see you later, uh, brother. Okay. I don't, uh, I'll talk to you later, Randy. Stay safe. Wow, what would I do with 30 producers? Oh, my God. I could change history. I hope we're doing a little bit of that now. We're going to take a short break. Speaking about history, there's some history we're not going to be able to change. Uh, that's the fact that the former prime minister of Japan, uh, a country that uh, really is lacking in terms of the, the kind of weaponry you see in the United States, Abe was assassinated, broad daylight, on a, I guess, a weapon he got through a, a fax machine or something. I don't know. Ghost guns, here we come. Stay, stay tuned. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Powerful music. Uh, thanks, Mike. Again, you are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are honored to welcome back to these airwaves Tim Sharrock. He has written for years uh, uh, about uh, the Koreas, about Japan, about the region, about U.S. security uh, plans for the region. He's written uh, for The Nation magazine. He's the author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing. Uh, he has written, as I said, for The Nation and a bunch of other places. Tim Sharrock, uh, thanks for joining us on Flashpoints today. You're welcome. Well, uh, let's start off with your response. It was, to say the least, extraordinary that the former prime minister of Japan, probably the most known person in the country, former prime minister for eight, nine years, his father was prime minister, his grandfather was a foreign minister, this guy grew up on the lap of power. Uh, say a little bit about uh, the role he played in Japan and the region, and then we're going to talk about some of the actions that he took uh, that made him a little bit different than the folks that came before him. Well, he's uh, he's one of a long line of politicians. His grandfather was a man named Nobusuko Kishi, who was the prime minister in the late 50s until 1960. His grandfather, Kishi, was in the war cabinet of Tojo that declared war on the United States and made war on the United States 
and ran the uh, Japanese colony in Manchuria and Manchukuo, and also, uh, you know, led campaigns against uh, Korean guerrillas in Manchuria during World War II. And uh, his his uh, his great uncle uh, uh, Kishi's brother was also a prime minister, and they and they both come out of the, you know, they're both part of the Liberal Democratic Party, which was a very right wing party started by the U.S. CIA with with funding from the CIA in the early fifties during the Cold War. And uh, so it's a very conservative, pro-American party. It's basically been in power since 1955. Uh, so, you know, his, his legacy is, uh, is from these uh, wartime leaders. And Abe, you know, became active in politics as a young man and, and went up the ladder. This, you know, he was prime minister uh, twice and he's the longest serving prime minister in Japanese history. Uh, but, you know, he's been trying for years to throw out the uh, peace constitution that was imposed by the United States during the U.S. occupation and make Japan a more, quote unquote, normal country that can fight military battles and be involved in military actions overseas. Uh, but he, 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 he's part of a group of, you know, conservative politicians who have wanted to, you know, sort of make remake the Japanese empire, but under the tutelage of the United States. And uh, he's very, he's probably, uh, I usually call the LDP the most obsequious pro-American political party in the world because they will do anything, bend over backwards for the United States. I mean, the United States has bases all over Japan they're concentrated in Okinawa which is a point of contention in Okinawa but the US planes basically have control of the airspace in Japan there's been a lot of uh, talk recently in the Japanese press a lot of complaints about American military helicopters that fly very low over Tokyo and no other no you know no Japanese planes or helicopters are allowed to do that uh, the United States has a lot of control through its military in Japan, and uh, he's he's you know one of the biggest backers of that. So that's that's to begin. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're talking about uh, yesterday's uh, bold daylight assassination of uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Uh, was it? I mean, it was sort of extraordinary in the sense that Japan doesn't have the kind of killing machine operations, uh, the slaughters we've been seeing in the streets of the United States. Although, I guess if Shinzo Abe had his way, uh, there would be more weaponry available and there would be sort of a more militant culture. You want to talk about that? No, I don't think the conservative politicians want to have you know guns in people's hands at all i mean it's in japan uh it's, it's very very difficult to own a gun you have to go through all kinds of all kinds of bureaucratic hurdles to, to to even get a gun and of course the kinds of guns that are available are mostly hunting hunting rifles that, that people right. might use out in the woods but there's there's not a scourge of of handguns like we have here and, you know, violence by gun is very rare in Japan. I mean, I think in 2000, 2021, 
there was only one death by gunfire in Japan. And, and you know, compared to the United States, it's, I mean, there's just basically no comparison. Uh, so it was a very shocking thing. I mean, you know, in, in, there's been a lot of shocking assassinations in Japan going back to the 1930s. Uh, the most recent one I can remember that was so public as this was the assassination in 1960 of a socialist socialist leader named Asanuma, a leader of the Socialist Party, who was stabbed on stage on live television and killed by some kind of right wing fanatical student, uh, in, you know, by seen by millions. Uh, and there's been other stabbings like that, and you know, there's been cases in the last few years when people got one locked into a streetcar or something and stabbed a bunch of people, but there's no access to guns. And so they don't have, you know, gun problems. So this was a, a really shocking thing to happen, of course. And as you mentioned, this guy uh, apparently, you know, made a gun by himself. It was kind of a crude kind of shotgun, but the pictures I seen, you know, just, you know, made out of tape or something. I mean, it's very, very crude and weapon. wood, wood and metal, uh, yeah. Shoots wood bullets and, metal. and kill them, obviously. I, I guess I was uh, meaning, it's interesting what you say about uh, the, the lack of uh, guns in, in the culture, but I was talking about actually uh, uh, Shinzo Abe of being a more militant in the more, in the, in the macro sense, in the military sense, in his willingness to collaborate with the United States on uh, what you've reported extensively on in terms of the Pacific pivot. Could you talk about uh, Abe's relationship with the United States and the role he played in uh, that vision of the United States of the that Pacific pivot, which is really about uh, drawing a, a national security ring, if you will, around China and controlling, uh, uh, trying to undermine what is clearly going to be the Chinese century? Well, the, 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 this Pacific pivot under Obama, I mean, it really was the continuation of a policy that began, you know, during the Cold War. I mean, what the U.S. did after, after the, uh, you know, the, its occupations of Japan and Southern Korea was to, was to, you know, basically, you know, rearm Japan up to the point where uh, it, it, Japan, Japan could not make war overseas, but they, they built up its military during the Korean War. And of course, South Korea has had a massive military force, uh, and and they since since the 1950s, really, the United States has been trying to push South Korea and Japan into a military alliance with the U.S. and and it's gone through stages. Uh, is particularly you know in the late 70s, uh, there was an agreement between the U.S. and Japan. Uh, 1978, new guidelines for Japanese soldiers and, and ships and planes to c collaborate with the U.S. military. And step by step, uh, they've, they've increased that relationship. And, of course, the U.S. has very, very tight control in South Korea in its military, too. A U.S. general commands South Korean forces in times of war. And there's a very close military alliance with Japan. And so this has been around for a long time. Uh, it's just that, you know, uh, after the Iraq war or during the Iraq war and, and the Afghanistan war, you know, this national strategy people 
under Obama, this you know made this decision. Let's try to shift American forces back into Asia from the Middle East, and and they started doing this under Obama, and and you know the if you notice over the last twenty four hours, uh, you know who has come on you know Twitter and the U.S. media to to you know praise Abe and this close alliance with the United States. It's you know. Hillary Clinton, President Biden, Tony Blinken, Donald Trump, Trump's daughter. You know, they all say the same thing. They love this guy because he was so so pro-American and so anxious to be a military partner with the United States in East Asia. Uh, and he's, a, you know, he's, he's, he's probably the most hawkish and the most rightist uh, Japanese prime minister to take to ha- hold power in the entire period after World War II. Uh, I mean, and he also was a leader of this faction of the so-called Liberal Democratic Party that refused to acknowledge Japan's war crimes, particularly in against Koreans, uh, war crimes of kidnapping people, bringing them, forcing them into Japan into forced labor, working in coal mines during the war. Uh, and then, of course, the so-called comfort women, who are women who are kidnapped and forced to become uh, prostitutes for, for Japanese soldiers all over the Pacific. And this has been a point of contention about how does Japan uh, compensate you know, Koreans for that those crimes and, say, and you know please say a little bit more about the please say i'm sorry to interrupt please say a little bit more about the impact of the comfort woman uh because it clearly it was an issue uh that meant a great deal uh to koreans uh and and abe was sort of vicious all the way through uh in terms of uh, his unwillingness to recognize there was all kinds of extraordinary things being done to bring comfort if you will uh to the comfort woman after the way they were treated but abe was really uh, forcefully against uh uh this recognition right well yeah he, they don't they will not you know re- recognize that as a crime basically and you know a lot of the japanese right there's there's a lot of talk of, of, about this among in Japanese writer circles, and even there's American academics that are now, you know, uh, pushing the same line that you know these are after all they they were paid and so they were they weren't really oppressed people and you know it wasn't such a bad thing and uh, you know they chose to be prostitutes and this kind of thing but these women were forced many of them were girls uh, many, you know they they were kidnapped from their homes they were forced to go to you know, battle battle stations all over China, uh, Okinawa, when American troops would clear out islands in the Pacific during the World War II, they would find, you know, little huts with, filled with these with these Korean women who worked in these so-called comfort stations. I mean, it was a terrible crime that they did. And, and during the Obama administration, in the Obama administration's zeal to, you know, Form this trilateral three-way military alliance between Japan and South Korea. Uh, Abe, when he was he was prime minister then, uh, and and the uh, now disgraced South Korean president Park Geun-hye, they finally cut an agreement around these so-called comfort women, 
where there there was going to be this fund set up for them, and this was signed, and it was it was encouraged greatly by Obama and his advisors at the time. Uh, one of the people that helped uh, broker that agreement was Tony Blinken, who's now the Secretary of State. But when Moon Jae-in, a more progressive South Korean president, took over after Park Geun-hye was impeached. Uh, you know, the, the Moon administration basically rejected that agreement and said it, it was problematic, primarily because none of the women who were involved were consulted. It was just government to government that women didn't have a say. The victims of this system of, of sexual slavery didn't even have a say, and so it was rejected. And then you know some Koreans have have gone to court to try to get uh, you know. Uh, uh, compensation from Japanese corporations that employed slave labor, such as you know Mitsubishi and other huge Japanese conglomerates. And when they did that, uh, Abe, we got really angry that when there was a, a Supreme Court decision in in South Korea uh, saying that that Korean citizens could seek uh, you know could seek. Uh, could sue in these Japanese companies and, and made it kind of legal to do that and we get compensation from them. Abe just, you know, in, a, in an angry fit, you know, basically cut off South Korea from high-tech trade with Japan. And, th- you know, this was a few years ago, and this caused, you know, a huge ruckus uh, between Japan and South Korea. And, and, and the U.S. basically under Obama and under Trump as well, they basically took the Japanese side and kept telling the Korean side to kind of, you know, cool it on your demands about Japan. You know, let, can't you guys just work it out among yourselves and so on? Uh, so it, it's that issue is, is very important in Korea. And, and uh, so is the, the, the case of forced labor. I mean, you know, the Japanese colonial system during World War II and its oppression oppressive system in Korea was, you know, really un- incredible, awful conditions that people lived under. And, uh, you know, Abe and his party just, you know, refused to acknowledge the full gravity of what the Japanese did. And, you know, that's the crux of the problem. And that's why he's so disliked in Korea, North and South, and why he's also very much disliked in China. And, you know, when today I was watching, you know, different news shows, like, you know, I saw, I think it was on CBS, they put on Caroline Kennedy, who used to be the U.S. ambassador. And she's saying, oh, Abe was such a wonderful man. He really tried to, you know, uh, you know, reach, you know, conciliation, reconciliation with the United States. He was the first prime minister to visit Pearl Harbor, Japanese prime minister. But, you know, they haven't done reconciliation with the people that they, you know, the, the people that they kidnapped and the people that they used for slave labor. They, they, they've barely done any kind of reconciliation. And, you know, they, they rub it in people's faces. You know, there's this famous shrine in Japan, in Tokyo, where the war dead are buried, Right. And including in the war dead who were buried there are many of the people that were convicted of war crimes, war criminals during World War II. And Abe and the LDP just consistently, they, they keep going there. And the U.S. keeps saying, why don't you like not go to this shrine? 
or where your word into there, just so you know, you, you kind of erase this this uh, uh, tension. And they continued to go, and it's just it really is a in their in your face kind of resistance to any kind of reconciliation about what they did during the colonial period. So you know, it's it's um, this this man is you know really has a mixed uh, legacy. And it's very yeah. sad that someone would get shot. It's it's an affront to democracy for any time you have assassinate political assassinations. But you know he, his legacy is not of a man of of you know sterling reputation who really tried to you know reconcile between you know two different countries in Asia. That's not the case at all. Yeah, I, I did catch Tony Blinken sort of going on and on and on, uh, very unconvincing. I don't find him a very good speaker anyway for somebody who's Secretary of State. Um, but um, clearly uh, he represents that kind of uh, American power grab in the region. And I, I guess I'd like to uh, finish off the interview by talking a little bit about uh what's been going on in the region we've been hearing in this context uh we hear like so-called defense policy types saying uh we have to be very careful now that um this is a chance for china to seize more power in the region uh, and we're obviously we're concerned in this context and now uh we're in this weapon we're in really it seems that we're in a uh, a race for space with the chinese and how are they going to support are they supporting the russians i mean there's a lot of war talk it, uh, it this always seems to come up through the democrats but could you talk about all this this is a dangerous well, moment. You know, yeah, the, 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 there's this shift now where China is now the strategic enemy, basically. And so it's a it's a military and economic battle that they keep talking about, this administration. And, and even lots of Republicans talk the same language, too. Uh, it's, it's all about China. It's all about confronting China, curbing China's military power, uh, preventing it from taking any kind of action that would be uh, damaging to U.S. interests, and they keep waving this, you know, fear about imposs- China possibly invading Taiwan. In terms of the, you know, what the U.S. is trying to do militarily, uh, Japan has been in the forefront. They want this alliance. They're part of this, you know, Indo-Pacific alliance that the U.S. has been pushing for the last few years. That includes India, of course, and Australia. And now they're trying to get South Korea to join it in a formal way. And it's all to confront China and, of course, to confront North Korea. Uh, Abe has been one of the most confrontational leaders in terms of North Korea and Japan as well. And, and uh, I think that uh, a calmer leader in Japan, if, if another party had been in power, they might have been able to cut an agreement with North Korea, normalizing ties and resolving the issue of Japanese who were kidnapped, cruelly kidnapped by North Korea during the 80s, 70s and 80s. But he's made it such a confrontation that I think negotiations became impossible. And, you know, military first is not a very good policy when you have, you know, you know huge amounts of military on each side. And, you know, even, you know, a slight accident, a slight miscalculation could start a war. It's really a huge, people miss the fact that there's this, that along with the Pacific pivot, 
which a term I, I can't stand because they've been there this whole time. Uh, but there is a massive military you know, growth going on in military expansion. South Korea has you know, incredible military power, high-tech weapons, missiles, and so on, and Japan as well. And, you know, Japan is just constrained by its constitution, which still has a peace clause that was imposed by the U.S. during the occupation. And it keeps Japan from, you know, taking part in war overseas. And it was Abe's lifelong goal to eliminate that clause. And they, you know, I think that, uh, you know, he, he was hoping to do it again. He was hoping to come back and be prime minister again. And I think you know that that the LDP is gonna is gonna keep trying to get a two thirds majority in the Diet, the, the, the Parliament there, uh, to push push through you know, getting rid of that constitution, and then it would go to a public vote uh, where they'd have to have a majority of Japanese voters would have to support it. Right now, uh, most Japanese do not want the constitution changed. And, and so I think, you know, there, there is some resistance in Japan to becoming a full-fledged military power. And, uh, but it's, you know, it's still a very conservative government. We haven't talked about its economic policies, but that's not really the focus here. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, militarily, it's, we're in an arms race in Northeast Asia, in case anybody hasn't noticed. Um, you know, it's, 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 very, it's very serious. And I think, you know, Biden is leading the United States into 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 what could be another military disaster in Asia, uh, and this kind of confrontational attitude with China uh, is is just you know can can only lead towards more tension and, and the possibility of war. And I think it's a I think it's very dangerous what the U.S. is doing and what the U.S. is doing, particularly with the Japanese LDP and and also with the newly elected conservative president of South Korea who wants to formulate, who really wants to strengthen this three-way military alliance. I'm, I'm also concerned. I've heard uh, several reports over the last couple of days about this. You know, one of the talking points coming out of Washington and the administration is that we're in a, we're in a, a space race. I mean, I, I think it's the United States that just created a new branch of the military called Space Force. But how does uh, China stack up to the United States in terms of uh, space exploration and uh, general military preparation? Uh, is China equal to the United States militarily? How does that? How does it stack up? You know, I I do I do I do not think that the the, the Chinese. There's been a big uproar recently. Uh, by national security types about a military base China is supposedly building in Cambodia. But, you know, China doesn't have overseas military bases. We have, you know, dozens of bases scattered around Japan and Okinawa. South Korea, of course, is basically is a huge military base for the United States. U.S. forces are in Guam, all the Pacific Islands, Australia, you know, China and North Korea are surrounded by U.S. military and U.S. allied military, and I'm not. I don't really agree that the you know the strategic edge is now going to China. Yes, they've really developed their military and they're doing some things that are that that are and the maneuvers and you know going close to you know going into the the uh, uh, 
near the coast in Japan and South Korea, Okinawa, right off of the coast of Okinawa. You know, a lot of actions like that. Both the Soviet, both the excuse me, the Russian and Chinese navies and air forces have, have you know responded to the military buildup with their own military buildup, and and so you know you know China is now the number one enemy for the United States, and and I and so they want the U.S. wants its you know allies to to fall in line, and both Abe and and uh, you know. The, 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 the South Korean uh, Yoon, the, the new president of South Korea, are are willing to do that, but I think you know it's 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 really a dangerous situation. The, the other thing I want to say about Abe is is you know the whole American military posture in Asia is centered around Okinawa, the islands of Okinawa, where the U.S. has massive you know marine base. Where Marines, you know, they're twenty four seven, ready to go into Korea or wherever battle zone they need to get into. They're, they're, there's, they're building a new Marine base, and that and Okinawa is also where you mentioned, you know, space warfare. That's where all the high altitude spy planes are based as well. Uh, Okinawa has been trying to get reduce the U.S. military uh force in Oki- in okinawa for years and years and years and you know abe and his his party just turn their backs on the people of okinawa and frankly most of the people of japan do too and you know this is a this is a human rights catastrophe i mean people in okinawa have had to live with bases you know you know just blocks away from their homes for 75 years and there's you know accident after accident you know violence by american forces there it's just year after year after year it continues there's always incidents like this and it's just gonna you know it's, it's really made the whole area around there is this huge you know military base and whatever happened to like you know peaceful development I, I just think that Asia is just, you know, becoming, a, it's a powder keg right now. Yeah, and, really you know, the conservatives in yeah. South Korea and Japan, and, you know, these are liberals in the United States, Democratic, I don't know what to call them. But they're all, all military. Right. I got to, I got to, I got to call it off now because we're just about out of time uh, Tim Chirac the information is incredibly important uh, I hope that you'll come back and we can continue this conversation but for now we're out of time thank you for joining us on Flashpoint really I appreciate, appreciate it. it take care and that's it for us